0: Please be advised this story contains adult content and graphic language. Welcome back to Sleuth. I'm Linda Sawyer. In this episode, we feature part 2 of our interview with Rachel Buffett's ex-boyfriend, Scott Errett. With so many stories filling his years with Rachel, Scott called in after leaving our studio to share a few additional memories he candidly revealed for our listeners. Hello? Hello. How are you? It's Linda Sawyer here from Sleuth.
1: Hey, I just wanted to mention a few things that I... Just a couple of things I forgot to talk about that I think are important.
0: Go right ahead.
1: Well, I, we didn't talk about how I met Rachel's parents, which is a bizarre story all in itself. Um, I don't know if you want to know that or not.
0: Of course.
1: Um it was pretty early on when we were seeing each other and I, re- I don't remember why, but the, for some reason, medieval times got me a hotel room right across from the castle down there to spend the night, which they would do occasionally if I was doing something like marketing event or something for them. And she got all excited because we're staying in a nice hotel room and blah, blah, blah. So she wasn't working that night and I was doing the show and I was looking forward to getting out of the show and she was in the room over there or at the pool or whatever, having a good time. I get out of the show and over, and she's not there. And there are all these text messages on my phone about how she went out to sing karaoke. And it was with, I think we talked about that girl at the castle that she just glommed onto to her and brought her into her circle. And this this poor girl had no clue about life or what was going on. Next thing you know, she's you know, going to parties and showing off her boobs for a $20 bill because Rachel enjoyed doing that to her. So she's with her. And so she liked like to exert singing. power
0: over men and women is what you're saying.
1: Oh, yeah. Any control she can have over anybody and especially if it's to get them to do things that are bizarre that they wouldn't normally do because then she wins. She got them to do that. Mm-hmm. So it's all part of the, the manipulation thing that she loved to do so much. So anyway, she um, – there were texts on my phone and, and there were a lot of them and they were slowly – obviously she was getting pretty drunk from the texts – so I tried calling her. I couldn't get a hold of her. Finally, I, forget, I think I got a hold of her, and she couldn't tell me where she was. And she was with this girl from the castle and Dave Barnhart, one of the circle of the Taco Tuesday people, you know. Um, and they're singing karaoke somewhere. And... She's trying to tell me where she is. She wants me to come sing. I said, "I I don't know where you are. I don't want to go to a bar, but I'm going to come get you because you sound like you're wasted." So, she finally she hands the phone to this other girl, and she's kind of telling me she doesn't know the name of the. She knew the name of the place, but she couldn't tell me exactly where it was. So I'm trying to GPS by the name of the place. To make a long story short, I finally got there and found the place. And it's this seedy little dive bar, and I walk in, and they're all sitting at a table. And there's some girl I don't know. There's the girl from the castle. There's Rachel. And there's Dave. And Rachel is, he's sitting in like a tall, at one of those tall tables that they sit on like stools at. So he's sitting on the tall stool. And she's kind of like between his legs with her head on his chest. And he's, he's playing with her ass. And, and she's basically passed out. So I went up and said, okay, I'm, I'm going to take her home now. And he got pretty belligerent. He's still sitting there. And I said, no, she's she's going home now. And I looked at her and I said, you have to go home now. And she's kind of incoherently saying, yeah, yeah, whatever. And I said, do you want to go home? And she said, yes. So, okay. So I'm taking her home now. And he got really kind of, uh, I forget, but he reached out and I don't know if he pushed me or put his arm on me or something. And I basically said, if you touch me again, I'll rip your fucking arm off and beat you over the head with it. Um. So he was like so territorial,
0: up, but- like a boyfriend.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, um. So he yells for, for uh, security to come over. And uh, the bar security comes over and says, what's going on? I said, this girl is extraordinarily drunk. Is this bar going to keep serving your alcohol? He said, no, no. I said, great, then I'm taking her home. So they've kind of backed off because security was there and and said to take her home. So I, got, I took her out of the place. And we get out to the parking lot. And I don't know, cool air or something, she came around a little bit. And she's kind of sitting there in the parking lot. And she starts crying and she says, I just can't get away from these people. And I realized, well, I didn't realize then, I realized now looking back at it, that it's whoever she's with at the moment, that's the manipulation game she's playing. So with Mm -hmm. him, she's playing one game when I show up and take her out. Then all of a sudden she's crying to me, I can't get away from these people. It's not like you kidnapped her. Right. You know, she can't get away from these people. What the hell does that mean? But at the time it was still early on and I'm still thinking this poor girl was so confused and, and messed up from all this but she's so drunk, so I said, "I'm taking you home." And she's like, "Okay," but I didn't mean home to my place, because as much as <laughs> the story may sound like I'm I'm a real creep, um, that's not what I did. I was going to take her home, right to her home, which is the flop house where you
0: like to be able to have conjugal visits with someone that's conscious. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah, it'd be better if she was conscious. Yeah, so I get her in the car and she passes out. Put in the back seat and she passes out. I don't know where she lives. I know it's in Long Beach, so I'm driving toward Long Beach and I keep reaching over the seat and like, she says, Rachel, you have to tell me where you live. And eventually she kind of mumbled out the address and, and somehow I found it. I don't remember exactly. But I get there and it's this weird little warehouse that they've converted to live in, which is her and her mother and her father and her two older brothers and her younger sister and her younger brother are all living in this little weird converted warehouse
0: and it's like a one-bedroom warehouse, loft, like I was told.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So it's like Mother Hubbard in the shoe.
1: It really is. I mean, they're living. It's I hadn't been in it yet, so I didn't know at that point. But it's it's a bizarre living arrangement. It's bizarre. So I, I get her out, and she's saying no, 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 and I'm no. You're you're going home. So I take her out, and I'm pounding on the door, and nobody's answering at the back door. So I go around to the front door, which is this weird, you know opaque glass. It used to be like a storefront or a warehouse or something. Right, they mountain.
0: look like businesses from the front, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I'm pounding on the front door, and I can hear a TV or something going inside, but no one answering the door.
0: What time would you say this is?
1: Oh, God, that's a good question. Okay, the show would get out at 10-ish, 11, 12. This is probably 1 o'clock in the morning. Okay. Twelve thirty, one 1 o'clock in the morning. I keep, and finally she like pulls away from me and goes running up the street. And I thought, well, okay, how far can she go? She can barely walk. So I keep pounding on the door. And finally, I I don't remember who answered first, but uh, her father's in his boxers and her sister's in a little sleeper and her mother's in like a nightgown. and, And they're all like, what's going on? And I said, well, I brought Rachel home. She's drunk out of her mind and she should be home. And, oh, where is she? I said, she went running up the street. So they come out, and we're all trying to, and we're calling her, and we're looking around, and we can't, can't find her. So we all go back to the front of the place again, and I'm going to leave because I'm like, I'm, I don't know what to do. I yes, brought her home. I'm out. Box, you know? Yeah. And at that point, her sister says, she's here, she's here. So we all go running of the back, and Noah had come home and parked in the back. And I guess she saw him from wherever she was and came running over to him, and they're sitting at the base of a tree across the street and she's in his lap, much like she was in Dave's lap in the bar, like between his legs with her head on his chest and he's petting her and, and, and she's crying and crying and crying. I'm out. I'm going home. You're home now with your family. If they have your best interest to her. They'll take care of you. It was bizarre. So I left and went home and the next day she called me and she's very apologetic and she needs help getting her car and everything. Now, why her family couldn't help her, I don't know. I don't know, but she needed help. She needed to go get her car. And, you know, so I drove back down to Orange County and, um, we found her car. It was parked not far from the, the bar, but she'd never keys. And she says, I think Dave took my keys cause I was drunk. I said, okay. So she wants me to drive her to Dave's place. So it's this apartment building. I drive over there. And I was amazed cause she said, I'm going to get the keys. I said, Okay. She just walked in. There was no knocking. There was no, she just went over and walked in. And she was in there for a while and she came out and she's shaking her head. And she said, well, he wanted me to get in bed with him. Said, what What are you talking about? She said, well, I had to tell him just here for the keys because he wanted me to get in bed with him. So I had to like just placate him to get the keys. I said, what do you mean placate him? She said, well, I'll just talk to him. I said, okay. So she got her keys. and. Uh, and
0: uh, so that's a sense of that like she's egging him on a bit That maybe she's leading him on if he thinks that he has the right to ask that and you saw them in this compromising position when you showed up at the bar yeah
1: Yeah. it sounds like she was
0: teasing him a bit
1: she was absolutely absolutely she would flirt with him on the phone he would i mean i would be there and he would be sending her texts and she would start laughing and I'd say, well, what are you sending back? And she said, well, yeah, we can go for drinks, That I'm not going to F you. And <laughs> why would you even write that? Well, because that's all he wants. That's really what he wants. I said, then why go at all? Right. But she, you know, it was weird. It, it's that, it's, pay att- she gets attention.
0: It's part of the manipulation and the, and the power.
1: Yeah. 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 She's the star of the little uh, uh, show. You know, so that's, uh, that's how I met her parents.
0: <laughs> Do you think that she had a similar dynamic with John Randolph?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, she admitted to making out with him on the couch while Violet was in the kitchen making snacks. Wow. So I thought that was bizarre. She said, but nothing's ever going to happen because I, I don't really like him that way. I said, Okay. It was bizarre, another bizarre... I mean, the, the whole thing, you know, the more stories I heard, the more bizarre it got.
0: You know, she stayed with the Randolphs for about a month after Dan was arrested, and Violet told me the the day she finally threw her out was the day Violet came home from work, because Violet would leave for work every day, and and the two of them would be left behind in the apartment. And, and I said, where did, where did Rachel sleep at night? And she said, in between us in the bed. I'm like... Oh my be God. And I said, Are you How? serious? And that's what she said. I said, I mean, you were married to John. How did you handle that? I mean, that's a that's a long time to have, you know, the, the Disney princess <laughs> slash potential accomplice to two murders. I mean, sleeping in between you and your husband. How did you handle that? And she said, Well, you know, John is a bit of a narcissist, and he pretty much ruled the roost there, and he wanted to basically stand by her. He felt that there was this Mm -hmm. mob-type mentality for so many of the friends at Camden Martinique that just completely were convinced she was involved, and he was going to stand right. apart. He was the one with the highest IQ, and he knew better. So <laughs> okay. so she said, I, I kind of went along with it until the day I came home from work, and the bitch said to me, you know, your oven's really filthy. <laughs> and she said, you're out of here.
1: <laughs> I thought that was oh just God. classic. Yeah. Are they still together, John and Violet?
0: No, they're not. They're now officially divorced.
1: I see. Uh, Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, you have to, this circle of people, it's just a bizarre circle of people, you know? I mean, you have someone who insists on sleeping in bed between you and your husband every night, but the final straw, she complains that your oven's dirty. (laughs) There there's something weird there. Mm, I, there's, there's something it's just a weird circle of people. It's like the perfect storm all got together at those apartments and
0: I, I think David Lynch would have a field day at Camden Martinique.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think so.
0: It felt like in many ways you were like a father figure to her, to Rachel. <sighs>
1: I think probably in a lot of ways. I mean, people can make fun of me and go, "Oh, what? You only date women with father with the daddy complexes um, because because of the age difference." But um, maybe, but she has such a weird dynamic with her own father. I mean, it's like a love hate relationship. She, I think, she appreciates his bad boy stuff but at the same time she's very religious so she's got to hate that stuff but she has absolutely no respect for her mother who's just a just a a Jesus freak to the point of being like mentally disturbed so it's it's a yeah maybe i don't know i don't know
0: yeah she you did do, you did sort of express to me there was this duality that she had emotionally with her dad because at, at you know one point she detested him because he spent all of their money on you know prostitutes and gambling and at the same time like you said she could relate to that bad boy behavior. Yeah, and and
1: you know when you said it just now it made me realize something. She may have hated him for spending all the family's money because that affected her. The fact that he was doing prostitutes and gambling and having an affair and screwing up their whole life, that I think she admired. Had he been able to do it without bankrupting and, and causing her to move out of that nice house into her brother's flop house, I think she would have been okay with it. Because it bankrupted them and cost her that lifestyle, that was the bad part. Not that he's doing prostitutes and screwing over her mother. That's okay. But money, I mean, the money was, you know... They had to move out of that nice little house by the beach and move into her brother's flophouse, She had to sleep on the couch. And how dare he do that to her? Well, that's <laughs> what of... he did to the mom. That's okay, what he did to the mother, but how dare he force her to sleep on the couch in her brother's flophouse?
0: That sort of falls in line with what Fernando Perez's letter reflected. He he was a jailhouse informant that spoke to Dan at length and asked him how how much Rachel knew and how involved was she in the planning of these murders. And Daniel said to him, she knew, and not only did she know, but she told me to do whatever I had to do to make them happy. So it doesn't matter yeah. about the behavior or the act or how heinous it might be as long as it impacted her in a positive way.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And the, the manipulation of, of Daniel, I never knew him. I've never met him. I don't know anything about him, really, except obviously he's a lunatic. But the manipulation, she showed me pictures of her in like a bikini or brawn panties and stuff. And she was she was getting these pictures taken because she was telling Daniel if he couldn't get the money, then she'd get it. And she'd get it by doing porn and, 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 and that kind of stuff. And maybe on Craigslist, you know, doing a little prostitution. I, that's incredible. It is you know, incredible. If you don't get the money for our honeymoon, I'm going to do porn. Who wants to marry that? Exactly. But it worked.
0: You know, he even, that that's, that reminds me of a of a very telling story that John Spath shared with me. And he's Brittany Boudre's stepdad. And Brittany was... The girlfriend of Daniel before Rachel, and she—they also Mm. Daniel cheated on Rachel while they were engaged with Brittany. Went back to Brittany, and they did a sex tape, and Rachel found it and threatened threatened to leave Daniel. And she found it just a few weeks before the the murders. So I think that's what Mm -hmm. jump started this whole hideous chapter of. Of their lives, but
1: well, there's no there's no better way to bind somebody to you than to be involved in a murder plot with them. I mean, that's you know true. that causes a pretty strong bond. You know? It'll be the end of that stuff.
0: So about John Spath, he told me the story about Dan coming down to see him on the weekend of the murders. It was Sunday, late afternoon, early evening, and he said he really wanted to see him and. Brittany and her mom were up in San Francisco. They were auditioning for American Idol. So John was on his own down in their townhouse in Ladera Ranch. And so he said, sure, come on down. We'll grill some steaks and have some stogies. And Dan came down and, and really opened up and said to him that he admired John so much because he stood up for his family, he protected his family, he you know, didn't let anybody give him any shit, and he just thought of him like a role model that he would have loved to have been, but he wasn't, because he said his whole life, women manipulated him, controlled him, and he didn't have the power to confront them or stand up to them. And he was questioning, wow. yeah, he was questioning with John, I don't know if I'm I'm making the right choice by marrying Rachel. I, I, I'm wondering, I'm worried I'm making a mistake. So I, I was like, you know, that was, in essence, sort of like a confession to you, John, because he had killed these these people, these, you know, Sam Hare and Julie Kubiushi, with the idea that he was going to get Sam's money and and take care of Rachel and, you know, mm-hmm. bring her on this wonderful cruise and she wouldn't have to, you know, steal anymore or do porn or whatever else. And he's going, I don't know if this is the right girl for me. <laughs> But I really felt that that was a very telling statement.
1: That's fascinating. Fascinating. I don't, like I said, I didn't know anything about Dan. I don't think, from I knew people who knew him and worked with him in little theater shows and stuff. I don't think this ever would have happened without her. I don't think he ever would have done anything. I think she is capable of manipulating a weak person into doing just about anything.
0: So do you have any doubt that she was involved in the planning and execution of these murders?
1: Well, like I said, I I would say ninety nine percent I'm positive that she did. The one percent hesitation I have is that he has never said, although you just said he said it to a jailhouse informant, that she was in on the planning. Right. Jesus. So no. So now I guess I'm hundred percent sure <laughs> because my 1% hesitation is always, why doesn't he roll over on her? He's in jail with a death sentence. Why doesn't he say, oh, by the way, she helped me do it. I mean, as far as anyone knows, she's abandoned him now. She, you said he, she flipped him off at the last meeting and walked out. I keep thinking, why wouldn't he? But if he if he did, if he's already admitted it to jailhouse employment, then no, I have I have zero doubt because that was my only doubt.
0: And I think a lot of not coming forward and rolling over on Rachel has to do with protecting his brother Tim Wozniak. Well, yeah. But speaking of hundred percent, Yes. Could you I think that one of the sole friends that Rachel had up until recently was a woman by the name of Shayna Adler.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I knew Shayna briefly, a little bit. She um was supposedly a horse person and that's like my my passion in life. So um I forget how it came about, but she ended up she wanted to give riding lessons or horse training lessons or something. So somehow she ended up with a horse. And she came out here, out to Acton. I don't know if we rode horses or if she just came out and visited the horses. But next thing I know, she's got a horse, and she's moving it out here to the place where I board my horses. And she's going to start up this business, and she's starting a website, and she's going to do all this stuff with the horses. And um, so I got to know her a little bit through all that. And then I don't remember what turned it all around. But she's speaking of narcissist. I mean, she's one of those people where you have a conversation and you can say, she can say, uh, um, you know, I had a real good breakfast this morning." You say, "Oh, yeah, I had to skip breakfast." My father died." She'd say, "Oh, well, I had eggs, and you know she's it's bizarre. It's, it's just that bizarre narcissism, but at one point, I thought, well maybe she can get her to stop drinking." And I talked to her about it, and it was like she's an adult, she does what she wants. And I said, well, this is, you know, still, I'm still thinking she's this innocent thing. I said, just, poor girl, she's, after all she's been through and all that, and she kind of chuckled and said, don't let her fool you. She's as, what is she, she's as responsible for what happened as anybody. Wow. And that blew me away. This is like her, her best friend.
0: And she said it to you so nonchalantly like that? Like. Like
1: she, she was oh, yeah. convinced
0: of it. She knew. She knew Rachel was just as responsible.
1: Yeah, that's what she said. And she told me stories about how what you said were called Taco Tuesdays. You know the the drug induced parties there, and I guess her boyfriend at the time or whatever was going over there, and she forbid him to go over. She said, "Place is crazy. There's nothing but sex and drugs, and you you can't go over there anymore." So. Yes, she knew what was going on. And that stuck in my head. That may have been the turning point when I started to look at this differently and wonder what more there was to it because her best friend said, don't let her fool you. She's just as responsible as anybody for what happened.
0: Did Shana elaborate on why she felt that way about Rachel?
1: No, and I tried to get her to elaborate because there are many different interpretations of that. She's just as responsible because she was stupid and didn't know what was going on. That could be one. She's just as responsible because she knew what was going on, but didn't stop it. That's one. She's just as responsible because she helped do it. Who knows what she meant by that? Right. She didn't say, she didn't say Rachel was part of it or Rachel did it or anything like that. She said, she's just as responsible as anybody for what happened.
0: But the fact that she said that, don't fool yourself. I mean, that was the start of yeah. that, right. Don't kid yourself, basically, right? Yeah, that yeah. that sort of in, that yeah. sort of suggests that. I know you probably are going along thinking she's this innocent victim, but be careful.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly, and Rachel was excited because she introduced her to the guy she was going to marry or something like that. So I don't know whatever became of all that. I, I don't really care. What's going to happen is going to happen. I mean. I, Everybody knows what happened. It's a matter of proving it. And I don't think they can until he rolls over. You know, that would do it.
0: Well, hopefully, you know, what we share on this podcast and and what others learn from guests like you that are willing to participate and share their stories, hopefully people can start connecting the dots and maybe have a better sense of what really happened to Sam and Julie. And where Rachel's role is in the planning and execution of these tragic murders.
1: If nothing else, it will certainly make it easier or harder for her to do it to someone else, to manipulate someone like that. I mean, when when it's pretty much public knowledge who and what she is, I think it'll be harder for her to, to pull it off. Because, again, she's really good at it up to a point. There's just a the fact that when a man looks at a pretty woman, he wants to think the best. Well, there's You know what I'm saying? <laughs> there's ulterior motives to, to that thought process. That's what I mean. He wants to think, oh, this is going to be great. This is wonderful. Uh, Men forget
0: to use the head on top of their shoulders sometimes.
1: Well, all the blood rushes from your brain to other parts of your body.
0: <laughs> well, and, you know, <laughs> she's also told people that, you know, she'll be damned if she takes a deal or cops to a misdemeanor because she mm-hmm. wants her book and movie. You know, the, they're all calling her oh an actress my God. and and she, oh my God. she knows that uh, she's got a, a famous future. But quite frankly, I think that it's more like an infamous future
1: <laughs> at best. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tanya Harding finally got her movie. There you go. <laughs> did, her, did her a lot of good.
0: What does that say about our sick society?
1: Yes, yes.
0: And I covered that story, by the way, the the Tanya Harding story. met her and and talked to the FBI and how much they had on her. But, boy, when I was watching that movie, I just kept barking at the screen. That's a lie. That's not true. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Scott, I'm so grateful you called in because these... Stories are all important. You know, it's just like little nuggets, little pieces of the puzzle that really help shape the full picture. And I thank you well, so much for making the effort to call in.
1: Thank you, because you're the one taking all the puzzle pieces and, and putting them all together. And it's spectacular what you're doing to give people a clear picture of it.
0: Thank you so much, Scott. Okay, ma'am. Have a good day.
1: You too. Right.
0: Next week on Sleuth, you'll hear from another close inner circle friend of Rachel and Dan's and who we felt could have been an excellent potential state witness for Rachel's trial. Audrey McVeigh was their third wheel for most of the time Rachel and Dan were an item, up until the week before the murders. What was it that she sensed that made her realize it was time to check out? Audrey McVeigh sits down exclusively with Sleuth, as she recounts chilling stories of the infamous couple, who Audrey at one time considered her dearest friends. If you enjoyed this episode of Sleuth, share it with a friend, and be sure to leave a rating or review. Follow Sleuth on iHeart Radio or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, so that you never miss an episode.